My name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think, surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we have sometimes put it in. And what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities, in order that we may deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society, and life. So, journey with me as we go deeper and wider. In this week's episode, we talk with Shane Claiborne on intentional community living, especially in light of The Simple Way, which is a non-profit intentional community in Philadelphia. Current activities of The Simple Way include planting gardens, running the store, and working for food security in the neighborhood as they seek to emulate Jesus. Shane Claiborne is a prominent speaker, activist, and best-selling author. Shane worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta and founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. He heads up Red Letter Christians, a movement of folks who are committed to living as if Jesus meant the things he said. Shane is a champion for grace, which has led him to places like prisons, also advocating for the homeless, and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. Currently, grace fuels his passion to end the death penalty and to help stop gun violence. Shane's books include Jesus for President, Red Leather Revolution, Common Prayer, Follow Me to Freedom, Jesus Bombs and Ice Cream, Becoming the Answer to Our Prayers, Executing Grace, his classic The Irresistible Revolution, and his newest book, Beating Guns. And Shane speaks over a hundred times a year, nationally and internationally. And his works have a appeared in Esquire, Spin, Christianity Today, Time, and the Wall Street Journal. And he's been on everything, anywhere from Fox News to Al Jazeera to CNN to NPR. He's given academic lectures at Harvard, Princeton, Liberty, Duke, and Notre Dame. Now, I normally launch straight into the topic, including our guest's story. But prior to launching into the official interview, me and Shane were chatting for a bit, and actually, that pre-interview chat was so wonderful. You see more of Shane's witness of what he is all about. So I have left that pre-conversation in there. And as you can tell, I recorded this episode earlier in the year during the very beginning of COVID-19. So please be aware of this as you listen to the first 10 minutes of my chat with Shane. And now here is this week's interview with Shane Claiborne as we talk about intentional community living. How are things going over in in Philly at the moment with everything going on? Well, we're doing all right, man. We're hanging in there. We uh, have ramped up a lot of the stuff that we do locally uh, we're giving out a lot of food and blankets and toiletries, you know, to folks that are, uh, don't have homes and, and, you know, elderly neighbors, things like that, trying to do our best to take care of folks. And there's a lot of agencies that had to close down about a hundred of them in Philly, um, through the, the virus and everything. Um, so we're, we're trying to, 
uh, I, I've been saying we're trying to be both cautious and courageous, you know, at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah, it would be quite a hard tension, I imagine, trying to be both, on one hand, loving your neighbor through isolation and yet loving your neighbor through um, helping your neighbor also through, <laughs> through well, helping out the way you guys do. Yeah, we got all those. We're, we're going through some latex gloves and uh, masks, I reckon, you know, like everybody else. We're, we're trying to do it smart. We And uh, apparently have spray painted the sidewalk six feet markings so that people stay apart from each other <laughs> <laughs> wow goodness goodness it, it's it's crazy it's crazy to think about what neighborly loves looks like in in this season um given that in most cases it would be you know getting closer and, and connecting more but uh whoever thought having to connect in different ways yeah jesus said uh, we're to be as shrewd as serpent and as innocent as doves so i think we got to be creative and uh you know, allow love to to flourish through the cracks of everything. But we, we certainly are trying to be smart as we do it, you know. My wife, uh, I posted a picture on Twitter. She delivered a chocolate bunny to one of our neighbors by a unicycle. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Pretty great. <laughs> oh, I love that. The other, the oh, other thing that. that we've been doing, uh, Nathan, is we have uh, – uh, you know, we, we've got over, we got more guns than people in the U S we've got over, you know, it's estimated now 350 million guns. Uh, so we've been taking donated guns from all over the country. So we're actually still accepting donated guns during the quarantine. Uh, and, you know, have a little protocol for how we can do that. But we, um, we, uh, have a basement full of decommissioned inoperable weapons. <laughs> wow. And we, got a blacksmithing (laughs) shop so we're able to uh you know fire that thing up and um are making garden tools and i'm gonna make some crosses out of the barrels and we make these little hearts you know so uh, it's pretty awesome oh that's so wonderful shane that's so wonderful you wouldn't want anyone to um go into that basement without any context that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it looks like a gun graveyard, so it's not too bad. You know, none of them are very intimidating because all you have is either the the handle or the barrel. You know, there, there's not many of them that look anything like they could do any damage, which is part of the point. But yeah, Katie and I both have uh, uh, been apprenticing in the art of metal crafting and blacksmithing, so uh, it's pretty awesome. Oh man, that's that's wonderful. Goodness gracious! Obviously, you've got that vision from Isaiah turning swords into plowshares. I imagine that's where where the idea came from. Yeah, both Micah and Isaiah, the prophets in mm. the you know, Old Testament Hebrew scripture, they uh they they give that that beautiful vision of uh, God's people beating their their swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks and uh and, and you know it ends by saying people will live without fear and we will study violence no more. Uh, war will be ended, you know, and so it's, it's a, that beautiful sort of, uh, vision of where things are headed. So, uh, I like how Walter Brueggemann, he, he wrote in a, you know, wonderful book, the prophetic imagination that if we, if we know that that's what's coming, it should change the way that we live now. You know, mm. if we know that we're going to, you know, ultimately repurpose our weapons into garden tools and farm tools, then, uh, it doesn't make sense to keep making swords or guns, you know? <laughs> Amen. 
Amen. Yeah, so we, we're loving it. And uh, uh, a lot of our work is, is all connected through uh, a nonprofit that my friend's now leading, which is called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards, uh, rawtools.org. So folks can see, you know, uh, all the wonderful things that are being made out of the repurposed guns. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I like what you said as well about that the fact that this will be God's future, that, of course, we learn, therefore, to practice in the ways of love in the here and the now, of course, in the context of nonviolence and loving all our neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think uh, in, in some ways, Australia is a great example of what can be done when a country, you know, really does have compassion and empathy and uh, rethink their gun laws. And, of course, New Zealand did that as well, you know, mm. after the mass shooting. Uh, and, and yet our country, you know, we, we just continue uh, to allow this to be normal, to lose a hundred, over a hundred lives every day to gun violence uh, in America. So in my lifetime, we've lost uh, more lives to guns domestically than all of the wars in U.S. history combined, the casualties mm. of those wars. So it's a tragic thing. And, you know, as a Christian for me, um, I... I I grew up thinking, you know, talking about being pro-life, but we often just thought about that in terms of abortion. Uh, and many of us are, are, are saying we need a much more robust ethic of life. If we believe mm-hmm. every human being is created in the image of God, then that should affect, you know, how we live right now. And, um, and abortion does matter, but, you know, so does gun violence. So does ending the death penalty. Yep. Yep. You know, I think the environmental crisis, welcoming refugees, all of these uh, to me are pro-life issues. And, and the fact is on, on one of the things that I found on both guns and the death penalty, it's why I did my last two books on these, is that specifically on those two issues of capital punishment and guns, Christians have actually been the obstacles to life <laughs> rather than the champions yeah. of it. We are for the death penalty at a higher rate than the general population, and we're the highest gun-owning demographic in America, uh, our white evangelical Christians. So you're like, man, here we are worshiping the Prince of Peace on Sunday and packing heat on Monday. There's there's something wrong with that. <laughs> there is. There is certainly something wrong with that image. Yeah, What what would it mean to really take Jesus's word seriously when he talks about loving our neighbor. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and, and I, and I, I'm convinced that the gun and the cross, uh, both give us different versions of power. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're very, they're very in, in stark contrast to each other, you know, one version of power, the gun, uh, is, is this image that I'm, I'm willing to kill, you know, uh, and the other, the cross, is that that we're there's you know nothing worth killing for, but there's something worth dying for. Yes. Um, and greater love is no one than this than to lay down their life for another. So I think there's there's kind of competing narratives. Um, uh, you know, the gospel of the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is very different from the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> you know, yes. very fancy. Stand your ground and Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek and you have a hard time holding, you know, a cross in one hand and a gun in the other, I think. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're up against. I I really do believe a lot of this is a, you know, it's a a battle that's not just a political one, but it's also a spiritual one. Mm. Because I think what what surfaces in a lot of these um, social issues are are some deep 
um, embedded theologies and, you know, yeah. spiritual things as well. I mean, even in the this virus, I think we, we see um, sort of the battle between fear and faith, you know, and, and I think that in a lot of things like guns, we see that same thing. And I, I just love that scripture that says, perfect love casteth out fear. And uh, I, I'm convinced that, uh, uh, you know, fear and love are uh, enemies, you know, and they have a they have a difficult time occupying the same space in society. And, and so mm. when we're more driven by fear than by love, uh, we can do some really terrible things. And, and you know, I think the coronavirus and also like some of our issues around gun violence and militarism, they they really raise the question, you know, are, are we going to choose fear or are we going to choose love? Yes, yes, and those are the big questions. Yeah. Wow. No, that's man. That's that's. <laughs> we haven't even started the official topic yet, and I love it <laughs> so far. So far, Shane. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely, man. So perhaps tell our listeners a bit about your faith journey. Well, I grew up in in down south. That's why I have such a charming accent. You know, I grew up in, in the Bible Belt down in, in Tennessee, where we've got beautiful mountains and uh, we've got country music, but we also have bluegrass. You know what bluegrass music is, Nathan? Uh, I've heard of it. Could you tell me a bit, bit more about it, though? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind, of, kind of got, you know, a lot of its roots uh, down in Appalachia and stuff in, in Tennessee and North Carolina. It's kind of like country, but good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful. But yeah, uh, so I grew up, you know, down there, and um, you know, incidentally, we were talking about guns, and we've got country country music songs that say, "This house is protected by the good Lord and a gun, and if you come uninvited, you'll meet them both, son." Uh, so oh, you know, goodness. it's it's not the best of our our culture, but um, we've got you know, we're known for sort of a slow moving life and. Um, Southern, uh, you know, hospitality. And yet it's also a place that still has a lot of the residue of racism and segregation because a lot of the, these uh, Southern states, you know, were the ones that held on to slavery the longest and still have some real um, entrenched uh, uh, things that are yet to be redeemed. Uh, but there's, so there, you know, like any place, it's got so much that I love and so much that, um, is is still uh, broken. And I mean, just in, in the high school I grew up in, we had the Confederate flag. We were the Maryville High School rebels. And so we, um, it, the, the flag that was, a, you know, a symbol of those who were fighting uh, uh, to, to uh, you know, keep slavery in place. And uh, that, that was uh, uh, one of those symbols. So I didn't, you know, have the eyes to see all of that until I went to college up north. And I, Ended up, um, uh, you know, living outside of Philadelphia, going to school, and um, stayed here ever since for 25 years now. But I fell in love with Jesus down south. You know, I I um, uh, grew up Methodist, and um, and yet there was a part of that that like felt like it had lost a little of the fire and the zeal. You know, the mm. the Methodist Church in the beginning had these incredible like move of the spirit roots and commitment to social justice. And some of that's still there, depending on what kind of um, part of the Methodist church you're dipping into. But there's also some of it that I just, I, you know, I, I wanted 
um, I wanted some of that that Holy Spirit stuff. So I mm. I let, I ended up meeting some friends in high school that um, you know were a part of the Charismatic Church, and um, I, I originally met them by kind of uh, on a dare. I went over in the cafeteria and asked them if they spoke in tongues. You know, <laughs> a lot of folks that pray, you know, they speak in, in these tongues. And and, uh, um, and and I said, you know, do you believe in miracles? Do you, you know, and, and they said, yeah, you know, you should come to our church. So I actually, I, I did. Wow. And uh, with a few of my other Methodist friends, most of them thought it was, you know, a cult and a little bit nuts or something. But I stayed and I got rebaptized and I embraced some of that. And, you know, I think a lot of parts of the church, you you, you keep what's lovely and you spit out the bones, you know, mm. and there's certainly some, you know, there's some funk that in the um, charismatic movement that I think, you know, anything that we do has the potential to get distracted and abused or exploited. Um, but there's a lot of that that I really I, I clung to both in my, the Methodist back, uh, you know, my my Beth Methodist uh kind of DNA and in the charismatic stuff. I, I still believe in miracles. I believe that the spirit of God's alive in the world. And with mm. the Methodist roots that, you know, they were abolitionists fighting for to end racism and, and uh, slavery. And, and um, uh, uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, you know, he said, if, if I die with more than 10 pounds then may every person call me a liar and a thief wow. because I've betrayed the gospel and betrayed the poor. So this radical ethic of, you know, getting rid of your possessions. He said, if I, if I get, if I find money in my hands, I get rid of it as quick as I can before it corrupts my heart. <laughs> wow. So, um, I was talking to some Methodist bishops and I said, I guess one of the questions is if, if John Wesley was alive today, would he recognize the Methodist church? <laughs> And I think there's parts of it that he would love and parts of it, you know, like we just we we always need kind of the church is always in need of a revival and, you know, Absolutely. of a reformation, a fresh awakening. So that's a yeah. little of my history. You know, it was only later as I came up to Philly that I uh, really dipped into the rich uh, beauty of the Catholic Church. And I ended up being mentored by a number of Catholics uh, and, of course, you know, spent uh a summer during college working with the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's order in India, um, and and she was still alive at the time. Wow, so goodness! Spent time with her. That, so all that's what, you know that's all shaped me. Wow! If you don't want me asking, what was it like working with Mother Teresa? Well, you know, she she uh, we we kind of venerate her now as a as a saint. You know, she's Saint Teresa of Calcutta. But when when she she had a reputation of being very down to earth, you know. And so I in in a couple of my books, I wrote about how we first encountered her was a group of nuns in New York gave us a phone number for India because we were, you know, approaching the summer of our university year, and so we were had the summer off, and so we called, and I thought, you know, we'd get a polite receptionist answering the phone, you know, like missionaries of charity. And Mother Teresa just picked up the phone. She said, hello. And I, I said, well, you know, we wow. were looking to come work and learn. We'd love to learn from you and from the, you know, the, the sisters. And she said, well, come on out, you know. And so we, we went out for the summer and I, I went a, another time since then, but it was transformative. I mean, I, I worked in the orphanages in the morning um, and I worked in 
uh, Kaligat, which was Mother Teresa's first home she started. Um, it's uh, known as the home for the destitute and dying. And, you know, every day we would bring people off the streets who were dying and we would hold their hands, we'd massage their muscles and feed them and, you know, uh, hold them. And every day they would, uh, uh, a number of them would pass away. And there was a number, uh, another home for the sick that if people began to recover, they would move towards that one. But it was very holy work. And, and grueling. So you also, I, I learned to pray while I was in India in a new mm. way. You know, I kind of grew up with prayer as like giving our prayer requests to God. Just sometimes like you, you rattle off a list of, you know, things you want um, or need God to, to do. But in India, prayer was much deeper than that. Um, a lot of the prayers that we prayed um, were about Jesus filling us with himself with his strength, with uh, his compassion. And one of the prayers we prayed is, uh, may every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul. May May I leave off your fragrance everywhere I go, Jesus. Uh, so that, you know, it was a really beautiful way of praying. And every day we would take communion. And one of the nuns, uh, told us, uh, you've heard the saying, you are what you eat. And she said, that's why we, that's why we do this every day is because we're remembering that we are the ones being transformed by prayer and by communion. We're becoming the body of Christ to the world. As, as Paul said, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. So we literally are this sort of mystical body of Christ's mm-hmm. love. And, and uh, the church is, is that body in the world. We're to make God's love manifest. God has no other hands but ours, no other feet but ours. Wow. And tell me, when did the simple way started to emerge in your faith journey? Just as we were in the middle of college, there was a group of homeless mothers in Philadelphia, uh, mostly moms and kids, homeless families. And that, that's our fastest growing population of, of uh, when it comes to homelessness in the U.S. Is, is women and children. But there's the least amount of adequate uh, housing and shelter space available. There's a lot of shelters for single men and things like that, but for kids and families, it's difficult. And so there was a waiting list of 3,000 families waiting for uh, affordable housing and, and space to live. So these families were very desperate. And they got together and they looked at all of our abandoned, abandoned buildings. And, and the irony is that um, and we have more abandoned houses than there are homeless folks. We have 30,000 abandoned houses in Philadelphia, um, and, and yet there was a waiting list for housing, so it just didn't add up. And they, th- these families found um, a very unique building. Uh, it was an old Catholic church building, and they moved into it. And the newspaper began to pick up on this, and they, they, they had a story that said, Church Resurrected. And it was about how this old abandoned cathedral had been brought to life again by these families. And they were living there. And sadly, the response of the Catholic Church was that these families were trespassing and that if they weren't out within 48 hours, they could be arrested. <laughs> Goodness. So the, the families hung a banner on the front of the cathedral that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? And, wow. uh, you know, of course, reminding the world that Jesus was born in a manger because there, there was no room yep. in the end, you know, and said, I have, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. So it was 
provocative and powerful. And we organized a student movement uh, of college students that were standing in solidarity with those families. And, and ultimately, we were willing to go to jail. You know, we were willing to risk arrest because we felt like what was happening was a real injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so months passed and, you know, the 48 hour clock ended, but then they continued to stay there and people saw it on the news. Their hearts were moved. Uh, people bought houses and donated them to different families. All kinds of things happened. And it was out of that that the community I'm a part of, the simple way, we really kind of track that as our uh, the the spark that lit the fire for us, you know, because we were still students, but we began to read about the early church in mm. the book of Acts. Um, and, and in particular, in Acts chapter two and four, it says that no one claimed any of their possessions were their own, but these early Christians, they shared everything they had. It says that they, when they took an offering, they put it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to folks as they had need. So they had this radical idea of sharing everything in common. Uh, it also says that they worshiped in their homes. And so it was more of a house church kind of thing. You know, it was, uh, uh, the gospel was being lived out of living rooms and dinner tables, you know, and we saw that and we're really inspired by that mm. um, and other movements that have taken some of their own inspiration from that uh, early church in Acts, like the Catholic worker movement and and other, uh, tr- you know, uh, hospitality houses. So we began to visit some of them and then we pulled our money together, just like those, those guys in Acts and, and, and the men and women in Acts. And we bought an, a house that now I'm, I'm looking at across the street from me. It's where, uh, six of us moved in as we were fit- wrapping up our university years. And then we have kept moving into other houses in the neighborhood. So we, uh, like I said, we had a lot of abandoned houses, so we we got a house for one dollar, and uh, it was a real fixer-upper, as we would say, you know. Wow. So we, we did a lot of work and uh, fix that up, and now we've got you know about a dozen properties all within walking distance of here uh, of of where we started, and uh, so it went from like an intentional community house of hospitality to more of a village, and um, we've got community gardens and murals and. Uh, different things that we've been uh, building over the last 20 years. Mm, and it does sound like you're trying to both model beautiful, these type of beautiful communities that you've seen from Christians in the past, and also with the early church. You did mention the early church and, of course, turn into scripture as well. So clearly you also found a very Jesus-shaped biblical president to live like this. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in, in fact, the more that we read the Bible, the more that we saw that this is one of the core uh, parts of who we are as mm-hmm. humans, um, th- that we are made in the image of God. And if, if you think about it, you know, God really reflects community to us, Father, mm-hmm. Son and Spirit, you know, yep. and we're made in that image. And it says in Genesis, when the first human is made, it wasn't good to be alone. And so we're made um to, to help one another, you know, and, and of course you continue to see the story is that God is shaping a community, um, to be a light to the world, to show the world what God's love is like. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the vocation, I think of the Israelite to the Hebrew people was to live that out. And then of course, as we, you know, uh, read on into the new Testament, you see, um, Jesus forming this community of people, modeling and living community to us with the disciples, sending them out in pairs. Um, 
saying, where two or three of you gather in my name, I'm with you. So there's this real sense that at the very heart of our um, of, of who we are is, is this idea of, uh, that we're to love and be loved, that we're to live in community with one another. And community is a little bit of a, uh, you know, a nebulous thing. It's, it's hard to kind of wrap your hands around because there's so many different iterations of it. And I think some of them, we see our own brokenness, you know, like, like I think, you know, gangs and fraternities and, you know, there's all kinds of things that I think they, they give us a sense of belonging, um, uh, but some of these communities are are healthier than others, you know, and mm. so we want to try to create, uh, as Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker Movement said, we want to create an environment where it's easier to be good. And mm. I, I've come to really love that. And I think what Christian community is about, it's about surrounding ourselves with people who look like the kind of person that we want to be, right? That they kind of resemble Jesus to us. And so we rub off on each other. And just like, you know, when we're teenagers, we all hear about peer pressure as a negative thing and it, and it can be, but I think like, like community is really about um, creating a critical mass of folks that are living courageously, that are living for love, that are living generously. And, you know, at our best, we're kind of pulling that out of each other. And at our worst, we're kind of catching each other when we fall short of who we are, uh, who we want to be, you know, and, and we, we kind of bear each other's burdens and we walk together through the good times and bad. Mm, sounds like almost creating a microcosm of what it looks like to be a colony of heaven on earth. Yeah, well, you know, I, I that's not a great way of saying that's a great way of saying it. And uh, Clarence Jordan, who was another person that really has inspired me, he started a community in Georgia uh, called Koinonia Farm, and it's still around. And he said, uh, this is a beautiful line of his. He said, our communities are meant to be demonstration plots mm. of the kingdom for the kingdom of God that we're to demonstrate and make manifest God's love and God's dream for the world. So catch this, mm. what that meant for Clarence Jordan in the early you know, 1900s was for black folks and white folks to live together. And it was actually illegal for them to live together in Georgia and to own uh, land together because this was still you know, a, a, a segregated pre-civil rights America. And so they lived together as brothers and sisters in Georgia and started uh, a pecan industry and they did all kinds of little micro businesses. Um, but they had death threats and folks that would shoot through their windows. And um, at one point, Clarence and Martin Luther King met and um, they say that this is maybe the inspiration for Dr. King's uh, when he does his I have a dream speech. He says, I have a dream that one day the, the descendants of slaves and slave owners will live together in Georgia and that this may be a part of that, you know, kind of apocalyptic vision. Um, mm. But there's all kinds of different iterations. And, you know, really what we're asking is um, what does it, as Jesus said, we're to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it mm. is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, what does it look like for the kingdom to come uh, on Potter Street, the street that I live on, you know, uh, in Philadelphia? And each of us can be asking that wherever we are, you know, and how do we demonstrate that? How do we live into that vision of seeking first the kingdom of God on earth? And we can also ask the flip side of that. What, what are the principalities and powers 
mm. that are obstacles to that? You know, what is squashing people's dignity and hope? And how does our life, how do our communities become an interruption to those patterns of injustice? Wow, that's incredible. I can imagine some of our listeners might have some pushback to this type of living, um, to that often come up that I've heard in the past and perhaps you've heard politically someone might say something like oh this sounds like you know communism or a socialist program (laughs) or personally speaking they might say something like are you saying we should all live like this in in communities like the simple way how would you expect that of us that those type of pushbacks I'm assuming you've heard these pushbacks before how would you respond to to pushbacks like that well a couple of things is is uh, first is, I, I don't think that Jesus came to give us shame mm. or guilt, but as Jesus himself said, he came to give us life and life to the fullest. So I, I wouldn't say we have to live like this. I would say we get to live like this. Like this is yeah, what that's we're, good. We're, we're literally, we're made to live in community. And I think a lot of us, um, we settle for individualism and isolation. Um, and in some of the richest countries in the world, we have the highest rates of loneliness, depression, and suicide. And even if you look at some community, some some groups of people that understand community very deeply, like the Aboriginal folks here in Australia or the mm-hmm. Maori people in you know New Zealand and mm. Native folks, like there's a real deep sense of community. Um, and many times that we we can learn a lot from that because I think yes. in a lot of our cultures we've sort of lost what it means to 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 you know, love one another and live together and not be, be simply dependent on, you know, the stock market or the government or whatever, but to actually live, you know, in vital community with each other. So for some of us, I think these muscles have sort of atrophied a little bit, you know, <laughs> and, mm. and, um, and, and so, you know, we, you don't, you don't run a marathon without practicing a little bit, you know, and so I think we've got to start small, you know, by figuring out what are, some ways that I can live more deeply and intentionally with a group of folks. And, you know, you know, people may not all end up piling into a house together, but you may end up doing um, a meal together on your block or a barbecue once a month or some, you know, creating some rhythms that allow people to share together. But I, I want to say that, uh, you know, this, this is, this idea is, is goes all through scripture. And the more you look at it, you, the more normative it is and the more weird the world that we live in is where right mm. now um, the average North American here in the U.S. and Canada is consuming the same amount as 500 people in parts of Africa. Goodness. So like to love our neighbor as ourself, what does that mean? You know, and I, I think that that uh, it means that we need to live in, in um, more communal ways, that not every person needs a washer and dryer and a lawnmower and, a, you know, a car. Like, but we can literally begin um, to, um, as the old saying goes, I got it on my wall, live simply so that others may mm. simply live. And, that's and when shame. right now we've got we've got less than 100 people that own the same amount as half of the global population. Like, that's a very unsustainable world, you know, yeah. with, with, you know, masses of people live in poverty and a handful of people have may, way more than they could ever need, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I like how Gandhi said, uh, there's enough for everyone's need, but there's not enough for everyone's greed. Mm. And, you, you, you know, you look at this, 
this idea that we're to pray this day our daily bread or, you know, this idea that there is enough for everyone um, if we would live into that vision, uh, the, the, the vision of God. And it is funny that people bring up socialism or communism. I always say I, I, I'm nothing that ends in ist or ism, you know, <laughs> I think we're talking about what love looks like and to love mm. our neighbor as ourself means that we should question what is enough when other people have so little. And the radical ethic of the early church, I mean, they were so radical on this. Basil the Great said, we call someone a thief if they steal a person's clothes, but why shouldn't we give the same name to the Christian who has more clothes in their closet than they would ever need while someone else is naked on the streets? I mean, that's great. So it's rooted in love, though. And even as you look at the early church, it, it it wasn't that they had community because they shared economics. They shared economics because they had community. They it was a the description rather than the prescription, right? Yeah, so to love good. our to love our neighbor as ourself means that we're going to hold our possessions with open hands. Um, but I don't think it's something that that is forced upon us. It's something that's provoked, you know, mm. and inspired within us by love. Um, but boy, I tell you what, you, you only need to read the, the, the gospel of Luke, um, where it's, you know, the, the Mary's beautiful song, uh, the Magnificat. And it, and it goes like this, the, the mighty will be cast from their thrones and the lowly will be lifted up. Mm. The hungry will be filled with good things and the rich will be sent away empty. And you, you read that and some folks are going to go, wow, that sounds like socialism. You're like, no, that's the gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I do think that there is a radical economic uh, vision at the heart of the scripture, yes. even all the way back in Exodus, when God pours out manna from heaven and God says, don't take more than one day's ration and there will be enough. I will provide for you. But if you stockpile and, you know, you're going to end up of slavery that you 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 know I, I liberated you from in Egypt and and so they were to even take one day's ration in the Ark of the Covenant to remind them of God's providence. So that's the vision of Scripture. You know, as Proverbs says, "Give me neither poverty nor riches, for in my poverty I might be forced to steal, and in my riches I might forget my God." And that's you know our vision is that everyone would have this day our daily bread. And that means that some of us will make a decision to live simply and not have tomorrow's year's birthday. Like we're Mm. not stockpiling for tomorrow while people don't have enough for today. Yes, absolutely. Though I imagine living in the community that you live in with the simple way has its own unique challenges. Because of course, whilst I said before that these communities are a, a microcosm of heaven on earth in a way, there's, of course, a sense in which we live in the here now, not yet. I'm sure that there are some challenges to living in communities like this. So it's not all utopia. What, what does it look like, some of these challenges in the here and the now? Well, it, it, you know, community would be pretty easy if it weren't for the people. Um, <laughs> and that, I've, got, I've got a quote on my wall that says, uh, Dear God, I know I'm strong enough to do this alone. Make me strong enough to do it together. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so there, I love there that. are a lot of things that, um, that, that you know, th- there's an old proverb that says, if you want to go 
fast, then go alone. And if you want to go far, then go together. So some mm-hmm. of this is just a choice to live deeper, you know, and, and I mean, even if you think about marriage, you, you laugh harder, but you also hurt each other. You know, you, you, you know, like the, the deeper we love, uh, the, the more vulnerable we are to, to be hurt. And, and yet, like, I think that's part of the choice that we make and that Jesus made for us, you know, I mean, Jesus, um, experienced deep grief and I think a holy anger as he flipped tables in the temple. But he also, you know, modeled for us what perfect love looks like. And and it's willing to um, uh, to be vulnerable to each other. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there's a lot of decisions that we've had to make. And the interesting thing is a lot of times they're not um, it's not the big decisions like buying the house that we're divided over. It's the little things like mm. what do, what do we do about mice? And literally, we've had someone in our community saying, I do not want to live in a house that kills mice or that has poison out. And someone else saying, well, I can't live in a house that has mice, you know, just running free. And, you know, how do you live with those tensions? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and mice might sound like a little thing, but, you know, if you're living in the middle of it and you're trying to you know, respect people's opinions. Uh, some of these things end up being, you know, deal breakers and a lot of churches split over not the big stuff, but the little stuff. So I think we've got to find, you know, ways that we, um, are able to name the essentials. What are the things that are really, um, uh, vitally important to us? Um, Mm. and what are the things that we can negotiate? And then I think, you know, a, a couple of the tools that we've learned for, you know, community over the years, we've learned from some other communities that, uh, you know, are are hundreds of years older than us, um, like St. Benedict. You know, this is community that's 1600 years old, the Benedictines. And one of the things that Benedict talks about is the toxicity of murmuring. And he mm. says, murmuring, it might sound like a funky word to us, but it was different than gossip. And it was just speaking negatively about other people. And and he said, someone who murmurs may even have a valid claim. Like I might say, Nathan, like, has a major dishes problem. Like he never does his dishes, <laughs> right? Um, and you might actually have a dish problem. But the fact, the way that I went about the murmuring um, is more toxic to community because we've got to directly talk with each other. Mm. And, you know, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18. And so we've yeah. got to create a culture where we don't talk around each other, um, but we talk directly with each other and that we can have space to confess. And confession is a holy thing for the church, you know, uh, that we, we create spaces where we can say we're sorry. And I think that, that that's a radically countercultural thing to do. You know, no one says they're sorry until they're caught on tape or, you know, yes. kind of back into a corner or they go to jail or something. But like, like we actually believe differently. You know, as Christians, we, we, we want to say that we're sorry uh, before it begins to, you know, contaminate our, our soul or create resentment in other people. So we preemptively make space to say that we're sorry. Mm. It's remarkable to reflect on this, that, and, and you're quite right, we live in the mundane, so it shouldn't surprise us that it's the hundred little things and how we do those little things each time. Like, we have, what does it look like to love our neighbor in terms of dishes or in terms of mice? 
Yeah. And I mean, you think about some of the things that you've you've been hurt over and, and probably for a lot of us, there are I mean, there are big things, you know, like uh, that, that we might think of. But but sometimes it's it's little things, you know, and if we don't have space for healing to happen, then those little things can become bigger things, you know, like a, a, a wound untreated, you know, kind of becomes pretty, uh, can become a dangerous thing. And so we, yeah. I think we've got to create spaces, as, as Dorothy Day said, where it's easier to be good. And that doesn't happen without some structure, you know. So we, we, we often talk about community structures are similar to the trellises that tomatoes need. You know, mm. if you don't have any any structure for your garden, then your, your tomatoes are just going to rot on the ground. But if you have too much, too much structure, then it's actually counterproductive. It it doesn't allow the fruit to flourish. It actually, you know, kind of stifles the life of it. And so we, we got to, I think every community and every congregation, every healthy family has got to create some of those structures and rituals and things that are healthy for them. Yeah. It's that right structure that causes flourishing mm, mm, yeah in fact even just talking right now i'm reminded even you look at paul's letters i mean you know it's it's one thing to look at paul's letters and kind of reflect on some of the the deep you know <laughs> the the deep questions of theology and yet at the end of the day paul was writing letters to address community things ethical things within the life of the early church yeah yeah, mm. absolutely. And they were very real communities. You know, the things that they're they're wrestling over are some of the same things that we're, we're wrestling over, you know. And I mean, you think about some of these, like um, the things that the early church, they're talking about circumcision, you know, mm. and they're like, do, do you have to, in a sense, you know, become Jewish in order to become Christian? Do you have to do something that was traditionally important, you know, to our the Jewish community, like circumcision? Or are we allowed to not, you know, to kind of bypass that? I mean, that seems like a little thing to us, but they it was a very big deal, especially if the person was about to be circumcised. It was a very big deal to them. <laughs> you know? mm. No, but it was, a, it was a big deal to this community. And I think, you know, for us, um, we've got kind of our own conversations uh, uh, that— uh, Sometimes we end up majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. And I think that's why staying focused on Jesus is so important. Because yes. when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we can end up focusing on things that Jesus did not focus on. And we can end up, you know, forgetting things that were very central to Jesus. So, we, we, you know, if we aren't careful, we end up talking about things Jesus didn't talk a lot about. And we don't talk about the things that Jesus talked a whole lot about. Mm, absolutely. So, it's the law know, of we, love. Yeah, we, that's why we talk a lot about, you know, red letter Christianity, a Christianity that looks like Jesus again, that acts like Jesus again, that loves like Jesus again, and that reads the, the gospel, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 some of the old Bibles, you know, have those words of Jesus highlighted in red, and that that becomes our framework uh, for mm. how we live. And it also becomes, you know, some people say, well, isn't the whole Bible important? And we go, yeah, the whole Bible is important. But Jesus really is the lens through which we are interpreting the Bible. And sometimes we end up doing the opposite. We interpret Jesus in in light of the Old Testament or in light of, you know, something Paul wrote in Romans rather than allowing Jesus to be the lens through which we're understanding that. So I still, you know, have incredible uh, high 
value for the authority of the scripture, uh, both in the Hebrew scripture and the New Testament. You know, uh, but but when Bible verses can be pitted against each other, and when that happens, Jesus is the referee. You know, yes. Jesus is the one that really is the sounding board. Uh, for how we are interpreting scripture. And there's a lot of ways of interpreting scripture that do not manifest themselves in love. Mm. And if our theology gets in the way of love, then there's a problem. Yes, absolutely. Jesus, in showing us what it means to love our neighbor, shows us, therefore, what it means to be community to each other. So I'm, I'm wondering then, how do communities like like yours, um, well, not just yours, but the simple way, how do communities like that challenge the way the world often lives, the countries, the systems, the empires? Yeah. So the the uh, first of all, you know, when I said that communities are a little bit of a, a nebulous thing, it's 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 uh, you know, it, it's like all of us have the seeds of community in us because we're made in the image of God. Mm. And yet there's no like perfect community. And even the, the the kind of form of community has shifted and changed for us over the years. So, you know, community looks very different from us 25 years in than it did, yeah. you know, when we started. Um, uh, and and so I, I think we have to be less attached to the the the, the forms of community and committed to trying to live out that love mm. with one another to live out, you know, with accountability, with vision and mission, um, you know, to live for something bigger than ourselves. And, and that manifests itself, I think, in real ways, you know, and praying together and eating together and sharing money together and doing missional work in the neighborhood, planting gardens together, things like that. But then I think there is a prophetic element that if mm. we are trying to demonstrate the kingdom of God, our communities also um, become um, a witness to the world around us. So Martin Luther King said this really well. He said that the church is not meant to be the servant or the master of the state. The church is meant to be the conscience of the state. Oh, I the love church, that. We're we meant to be um, the conscience of our nations. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that we demonstrate that, you know, and I think that that's where we also begin to think of policies um, and, and uh, social justice issues. You know, loving my neighbor as myself means not ignoring the policies that affect mm. their lives, you know. Mm. And I, I believe some of these things we, we've, we've kind of separated um, um, things like that salvation is only individual and personal or so, uh, you know, God is about liberation and social transformation. Um, and if we don't hold those together, we miss it. You know, we yes. miss the mark because you think of something like racism and slavery or the civil rights movement in our country. And some people said, no, that's a political issue that, you know, we shouldn't be talking about that from the pulpit. Like, um, it, it was also a spiritual issue, you know, <laughs> when, mm, absolutely. When, when, yeah. when white folks are lynching black folks and then worshiping on Sunday, like that's a spiritual issue. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, yes. when we're justifying slavery uh, by using a couple of Bible verses, like this is, this is toxic theology. So um, we did need God to change hearts because no law can change a racist heart or a sinful heart, but we also need to change laws. Um, mm. Like, because, you know, it, it wasn't enough just for 
racist hearts to be changed in the civil rights movement, we also had to change laws so that black folks and white folks could swim in the same swimming pools and vote in elections and, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, I think it's the same way when it, when we, in our country, and I I think in Australia too, as we think about immigration and welcoming the stranger, what does that look like? You know, I mean, yes, we are individually called to do compassionate work if we encounter a homeless person or someone who's on the street, but what does it mean for our countries to model the sort of love and hospitality of God? And that that's where I think the church becomes um, the sort of prophetic conscience. And we say to welcome the foreigner mm. or to welcome the asylum seeker, the, the refugee. Uh, this isn't just a political debate. This is holy work. Yes. Because Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. Uh, The Hebrews says, when we uh, bring in the foreigner, we are, we may be entertaining angels unaware. You know, even the Hebrew scripture says, when we welcome the foreigner, uh, we, we should treat them as if they were our own flesh and blood because we ourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So uh, I think that's, that's, the kind of prophetic conscience we need as we're engaging, you know, the, the leaders and the powers and, and the, the folks that are in our country. So, you know, in our country, we're, we're doing that around the death penalty and gun violence, immigration. I mean, mm. Lord have mercy. We've got a mess on our hands, you know. So but but I think this is a moment for us to be a prophetic witness to our, our world around us. And, and as Jesus said, we're to shine light in the darkness. Um, these can kind of feel like pretty dark times in our country, but, uh, you know, light shines brighter in the midst of that. So I think it's also an incredible time to be alive right now and to stand for Jesus and justice and in Trump's kind of America. And, you know, I think in your country, the issues yeah. may be very different. Um, but uh, but some of those those same themes are there, right? Like the, oh, the idea that, that, that you know, we, we've got to choose between love and fear. And I think that's, you know, true no matter where we live in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually, well, the more I think about it, it's like in terms of the question of politics and faith, I sit there and I sometimes go, well, actually, yeah, there, there is a politics to faith, except it's the politics of Jesus, which is radically different from any way we do politics in the wider society. It's about, you know, Jesus didn't become king through a general election but through a death and the resurrection and yeah what would it look like to realize that what we're talking about the kingdom of god jesus being a king bringing a different type of politics into the world that um is so radically different both in how we go about doing that and also how it came about yeah absolutely and you know i i think uh, a lot of these things as we're imagining the way of Jesus in the world. I mean, it's, it's so important that um, um, many of the prophets uh, were killed. They were jailed, you know, mm. and certainly Jesus um, wasn't always, as the Messiah, he wasn't always met with uh, wonderful, uh, you know, applause. I mean, he was he was nailed to a cross and executed and humiliated in public and you know i and 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 so i I think you know when we stand for the things that jesus stood for he himself said 
Um, don't be surprised when people hate you. Like, look what they did to me. And, mm. you know, the scriptures even say, woe to you when people speak well of you. That's what they said of the false prophets. <laughs> you know? yeah. So we, we, we probably will feel some kind of collision with mm. the world that we're living in. In fact, if we don't have some kind of collision with the world that we're living in, you got to kind of uh, ask ourselves, you know, are we imagining um a different world where the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Because if the mighty are cast from the thrones, the lowly are lifted, the hungry are filled, the rich are sent away empty. I mean, these are very countercultural values, mm, um, mm. living in community, you know? And so when Martin Luther King, when he first went to jail, he said, at first I was a little troubled as I went to jail, but then I looked at history and saw what good company I have <laughs> wow. in jail. Love that. Uh, you know, Jesus, the disciples, the prophets. I mean, they were they were pro- proclaiming, um, they were naming the injustices, and they were proclaiming uh, the way that the world could be made different and and more beautiful. And and they they were often uh, very controversial because of that. So you know, when uh, someone said to Dr. King, "You're maladjusted," he embraced it. And he said, you're darn right, I'm maladjusted. We live Mm. in a world that's become way too adjusted to injustice, Mm. uh, way too adjusted to racism and inequity. We've become way too adjusted to violence. And so we need some holy maladjusted people in the world right now. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I imagine then, as the simple, simple way has evolved over time, and of course, I imagine you yourself have changed in the process. And so I'm wondering, what has living like this, how's it changed your relationship to God and to your neighbor? Uh, well, you, you know, even as I, I uh, um, over the years, you know, we keep learning and uh, falling forward. And, you know, uh, um, th- there's a sense that I think one of the biggest things that I've I've learned is the importance of holding together prayer and action. Um, and there are a lot of people that pray, but they don't do too much else. And there's other folks that are activists, but they've lost, you know, the importance of prayer and uh, staying connected to God. And I, I have uh, on my my um, a letter here from a young man that said, I find myself very alone sometimes in a world of inactive believers and unbelieving activists. So wow. we really, you know, try to hold those together. And the way that our even our own prayer life has evolved, you know, over the years is we, we not too long ago put out a book called Common Prayer. Um, and it has prayers for the morning and the evening and in the, and, and the afternoon as well and songs in there. It's free, by the way, on on app for phone uh, for both Androids and uh, for iOS. But it's, uh, you know, commonprayer.net. And there's a book version that we use, you know, so that's been integrating mm. prayer into our life. But then also realizing that um, while we believe in prayer, we also believe in getting off of our knees and, 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 you know, taking action in the world. So one mm. of my mentors said, um, if we keep coming together every week and praying for our neighbor to get, you know, to have a, for God to provide them with a wheelchair ramp so they can get into their house, maybe we should get, leave the prayer meeting and get together some carpenters. <laughs> oh, I love that. And build build a wheelchair ramp, you know. And I think in our country, you know, we're tired of hearing politicians um, after every mass shooting say they offer their thoughts and prayers. 
um, the, we, we, we got to pray and, and prayers at the very heart of everything that we do. But when we, when we hear people say all that we can do is pray, I think we need to call, call that out and say, no, actually we can, we can do other stuff too. <laughs> you mm. know, we, can, we can organize, we can change policies. We can, you yep. know, uh, hold gu- gun uh, manufacturers accountable and gun profiteers accountable, you know, like, uh, so there's a lot of things that we can do. So I, I think, you know, that's a part of what we we've certainly learned because there's been times in our life where we've been very activist and haven't been as good at the prayer side of things. And, um, you know, I think there's other communities, some of the monastic communities that have a very robust prayer life, but sometimes it's uh, kind of, uh, you know, putting flesh on those prayers that is, is a challenge. So we, we're trying to hold those together. Um, yeah. So I mean, I've, I've learned a, a ton and, and still am, you know, as we, we um, continue to look and learn from other communities mm. that are out there. So uh, um, there's, there's sure a beautiful um, witness of, of communal living and, and of, you know, radical kind of prophetic Christianity. And it has a lot of different manifestations, uh, all over the world in different places. And perhaps just one last question for today. And that is, suppose the church tomorrow were to take this type of living more seriously. That, uh, that is the way of community. What's, would the church look like on the ground if we took this more seriously? How would it all change? Well, I, it's interesting that in the uh, 1980s and 1990s, um, th- there was this real movement towards the mega church, right? Bigger is better. Um, I mean, in some ways, that's still going. I mean, you still have the hill songs. You've got lots of churches that are growing bigger. And, and there's a lot of good that comes out of of many of those. Um, but as you look at the scripture, you kind of catch a different version of mm. how the kingdom spreads, right? Yeah. So the, the images that Jesus uses actually are all very small, modest, humble, even almost invisible, like leaven making its way through, the, you know, yeast making its way through the dough, light in the darkness, um, salt on the earth, even the mustard seed image, which um, mustard was like an invasive plant. And you were, Jewish folks did not plant it in their garden because it would take over the whole garden. And yet that's the image that Jesus gives rather mm. than like the cedars of Lebanon, you know, like that's kind of the imperial image of bigger is mm-hmm. better. But I think that we, we've got this image of Jesus's love moving through the world and Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker Movement that I, I've mentioned a couple of times, she's a wonderful mm, um, mm. Uh, kind of uh, sage on some of this. She said, our job is not to get bigger and bigger. Our job is to go smaller and smaller mm. uh, and, and to make God's love known on the ground in real neighborhoods. And can you imagine, you know, if every uh, uh, every Christian took in a homeless person, if you imagine if every Christian family adopted a foster child to make God's love like smaller and smaller in our lives. And so I I think there's Mm -hmm. kind of this movement from the mega church to the micro church. And it's not Mm -hmm. to say that corporate worship and and these meetings are not important. In fact, just the opposite. We, I worship, you know, every Sunday that I'm able to, you know, I, I believe in gathering together for worship. Um, but I also think that, 
in the mega church, sometimes we we can lose the the essence of community. That's why half the curriculum in mega churches is how to get people in small involved in small groups. <laughs> you mm. know, so mm-hmm. I think like we've yes. got to figure out a way that we can live more deeply and intentionally together. And that's what Jesus modeled. I mean, he did a lot of good stuff with twelve folks, you know, and even all those didn't turn out mm-hmm. perfect, you know. But like mm-hmm. he modeled that kind of community. And so, you know, that's good news in the middle of the quarantine too, where at least in our country, we can't gather together with large groups of people. And maybe it's an opportunity for us to, um, to think through how we live in more grounded, local, um, small ways. And, you know, through this period where many of us are experiencing some physical distance, maybe there's a renewed hunger for community and ways that we can think through what's really important to us. Because, you know, Christians for hundreds of years have had this period of Lent before Easter where we do things like fast, you know, go without food or, you know, go without chocolate or whatever. And then what you find is that you are more aware of the gifts that you have um, and Mm. the longings that you have. And I think in some ways this is a a forced season of... uh, of Lent in some ways, you know, that we are, um, even though Easter just passed, we're thinking through like, how can this time of isolation make us healthier members of our communities and how can we live more vital community and appreciate it more, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some things we've taken for granted. So how can we live more deliberately, um, uh, out, you know, after this pandemic and, and how can church be more vital? Because sometimes you see all these things that we do and, uh, these big meetings and, and the things that we focus so much attention on, like the optics and all of that. And in some ways, mm. we're just going like what really matters? You know, what is at Absolutely. the heart of what it means to be church? And, um, you know, the, the prophets cried out that, that sometimes our worship is just noise in God's ears. Amos said, if, if we don't um, have justice rolling out to the poor. So how mm. can we, you know, worship? is not a place to hide. It's actually the huddle before the game, you know, that should send yes. us out to people who are loving in really radical ways in the world around us. Mm. Oh, no, that's that's beautiful. You know, this season of isolation, it's also, as you said, you know, this hunger for community that hopefully on the far side of all of this, all of this devastation of this this virus, that we can nonetheless learn what it means to do community a lot better because the more I've been reflecting on it, you know, if I really want to listen to a sermon, I can pop on a podcast. If I want to listen to good worship music, I I can do all that. But you cannot ever replace community. And actually, what would it mean to do those things I've just mentioned, even in the context of community? And thus, as we become formed community inwardly, then we didn't go out into the world and show the world what it looks like for the church to be a giant Jesus to the world, essentially. Yeah, it's absolutely it. And, you know, in, in the end, too, uh, uh, Jesus says we'll all be gathered before God and the questions that we will be asked are, are not just doctrinal questions. You know, mm. uh, virgin birth, do we agree or disagree? You know, <laughs> but actually the questions we're going to be asked are, when I was hungry, did you feed mm. me? When yeah. I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was sick, did you take care of me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? 
and, and the real um, kind of uh, manifestation of our faith is how it affects the most yes. vulnerable people in our society. And I, I think that's so important because it became very clear to me that we can worship Jesus without caring for the, the, the most vulnerable people in our world. And in fact, mm. we can have a gospel that is just <laughs> promising people life after death while so much of the world is asking if there's life before death. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't, our yeah. gospel, have anything to say about the injustices of the world around us. And I believe in life after death, but I also believe in life before death. Mm. And I believe that the gospel is not just good news when we die, but it is good news right now. Yeah, and and I think that that that's that's perfect. Because, I mean, even if you think about it in terms of the afterlife, if it's not about going somewhere else, but heaven coming here, then when we do live communally, we're actually practicing God's future empowered by the Holy Spirit in the here and the now. And I think, you know, that's good news on the ground. You know, when we, when we love, love God and love neighbor in community and yeah, and perhaps goodness gracious, thinking of Matthew 25, what it looks like to accept Jesus into our hearts is perhaps accepting the least, the last, the loss into our lives. Yeah, and if you look at the uh, end of the story in Revelation, you know, which is is a kind of wild book, um, but there's there's some beautiful gems of the vision for the end times. You know, the the mm. revealing. Uh, you know, the revelation comes from revealing, and we kind of think of it like as the uh, zombie apocalypse or something. But I think it's really about the unveiling of all things. And and it's yes. been said that like in the United States, that's what's happening right now is that there's an unveiling, a revealing yes. of what our priorities are. I mean, certainly a pandemic causes you to choose who you're going to bail out and who you're going to let go, you know, like mm. your priorities are revealed. And, it, you know, no one could say it better than that. Trump did not change America. Trump has revealed America, right? Who we are. And so there's some really hard wow. questions we're faced with right now. Um, But in that book of Revelation, one of the beautiful images is of the new Jerusalem coming on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. And it's 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 uh, this beautiful vision of a city that is brought to life. And it's interesting that the the whole story begins in a garden Mm -hmm. in Genesis, but it ends in a city. Yep, in, yep. In, in Revelation, a city that's brought to life. And this has everything to say uh, uh, to our movement of environmental justice right mm-hmm. now and the ecological crisis is that in the New Jerusalem, the river of life is clean. The tree mm. of life is flourishing. And yes. it also says that the gates are left open. So mm. I, you know, that's a great testimony of, you know, that we can live without fear and we can live in beautiful hospitality. So that vision uh, is a wonderful one. Um, and, and, you know, alongside the coming of the new Jerusalem, uh, incidentally, is also the fall of Babylon, which mm. is the empire, you know, and, and as the image goes in Revelation that as Babylon falls, I mean, Babylon, who the scripture calls the great prostitute, because all the merchants and the kings had committed adultery and grown drunk off the luxuries of empire, right? And mm. my friend Tony Campola does an incredible sermon. I, I'll give you the cliff notes, the short version of it, you know, but he says, as Babylon falls, there's two responses. The, the merchants and the kings that profited from Babylon weep. They are weeping and they say, Babylon, Babylon, how could you have fallen? But then there's another response, and that is the angels. 
And it says the angels rejoice as Babylon falls and as the new Jerusalem comes. So Tony always says the question, I guess, for us is when Babylon falls and the new Jerusalem flourishes, will we be weeping with the merchants and the kings or will we be rejoicing with the angels? <laughs> wow. That's a good one, right? That's Damn, a good that's one, right? good. <laughs> As the Dow drops, are you weeping? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Goodness, that's incredible. That's incredible. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Shane, for this interview today. It's It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that was this week's episode with Shane Claiborne talking about intentional community living. To find out more about Shane and his work, check out his website at shaneclayborne.com or follow him on either Facebook or Twitter at Shane Claiborne. Follow the work of The Simple Way on either Facebook or Twitter at The Simple Way or Instagram at the underscore simple underscore way. Check out their website at thesimpleway.org. If you like what you listen to today, then please subscribe to this show, leave a review, and share with your friends. To follow my work, find me on either Facebook at Nathan.Forster or Instagram and Twitter at Nathan underscore Forster or find me at NathanForster.com.